Hey, Russ, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Russ is a software engineer at Cognitect. He's also an author and wrote, in my humble opinion, one of the most approachable books about closure. And the book is called Getting Closure. And it has a very unique approach because it not only clearly explains the concepts, but also shows them in the real world. So during this episode, we will try to get out of Russ uh, a bit of goodness from the books, but there is no way we can cover everything. So I would recommend that you get the book. And the book is by Pragmatic, Pragmatic Programmer. Uh, once again, it's called Getting Closure. Actually, the so I, I think of, of the folks behind the Pragmatic Press as the Pragmatic Programmer, because that was Dave Thompson's book that kind of started the whole thing. Right. But technically, the company is called Pragmatic Press. Um, All right, and, yes. and, and they would they would punch me in the shoulder if I didn't point that out. So, All right, here we go. So the book is by Pragmatic Press, and then you can get it there. Good. So let's talk about Eden. All right. Let's let, let's talk about Eden. Eden is the uh, in in the simplest terms, Eden is the extensible data notation, and it's kind of the native data notation for closure. And it's a little odd, I think, to start by start out talking about a language by talking about the data format, right? Then you don't start talking mm. about JavaScript by talking about JSON. I don't think. True. Um, true. But the reason we, you know, closure conversations very early on start with Eden is because there is not with closure, closure is a lisp and with closure or any other lisp, there is not one, there is only one data format. And that format is used both for the data, like I have a list of employee records or whatever, and it's also used for the code. So there basically is only one data format for both code and data. Um, and that's, uh, you know, if you, most people sort of, if you know anything about Lisp, right, they say the code is data and the data is code. Right. One of the ways that becomes real is the fact that there is only one kind of file format and it's used for both the the code and the data. And it turns out that has real benefits. Um, but one of the first benefits for a beginner is you only have to learn one file format uh, or one data format, I should say. Right. So Eden would be like you mentioned, like JSON, and it will be also like an XML. Right. But it's also like the way that we write closure code. It's the same structures. Right. So, so I think I think the closest uh, analogy to Eden and closure is XML and XSLT. If you think about mm -hmm. it, XSLT is more, I guess it's a programming language. It's certainly close to a programming language for manipulating XML, but it's, or mostly for manipulating XML, but it's written in XML. In the same way, you know, Clojure is a programming language that manipulates Clojure data structures, and those data structures are written in Eden, and the programs are written in Eden. Right. So what kind of elements or what kind of structures do we have with Eden? Oh, we have the usual suspects, right? We have Booleans, which are true and false, and they're, they're just literally, you know, T-R-U-E and F-A-L-S-E. Um, mm -hmm. You can have strings, and the strings are double-quoted. So, you know, none of this is rocket science, right? If you've been programming mm -hmm. for five minutes, right, you you probably know what you're going to you're going to see there's integers, right? So like one, two, three, four, or minus five or zero. There's floating point numbers. So one point, you know, what, what is it? Everybody's flo favorite floating point number, I guess, is pi 3.14159, that kind of thing. 
Um, you know, and there's, you know, exponential kinds of things and, and that. What else is there? There's comments. Uh, comments right. and closure are a little different. In which way? So I think the, so, so let's see, the, the typical uh, garden variety comment, let's see, we've got a few flavors. We've got the sort of ruby or pearl flavor comments, which are start with a hash sign, where you've got like mm-hmm. more of the, does JavaScript use uh, two slashes? I think it does, yes, doesn't it? That's yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, closure uh, goes back to an earlier tradition. This And this is really, right, completely cultural, right? Or it kind of doesn't matter what the comments look like. But closure goes back to an, this earlier Lisp tradition where they used the semicolon to mm-hmm. uh, start a comment. So the semicolon in closure is um, just like sort of the pound sign or the two slashes in other languages, it starts a comment. And there's a bunch of conventions in Clojure for, you know, if I have a, a comment that's sort of tagged onto the end of a code line, that gets one semicolon. But if I have a standalone comment, it gets two semicolons. But that's all just sort of convention that programmers have invented. Mm-hmm. It's not really built into the language. What else do we have? The other thing we have in uh, in Eden is nothing, right? Every, lang- every language needs a value to, to represent nothing called nil enclosure, and that's how you spell it, N-I-L. Um, it's the equivalent right. of null or none if you're a Python person. Um, right, so actually the nil and the false would be the falsy values in closure. These are the only two, right? Yeah. So, uh, so again, there's, it, it, it's interesting if you step back and you look at programming languages, there's only, there's a bunch of decisions you have to make when you're, you know, making up a new programming language. And one of those decisions is what do I put in an if statement that means true? And what do I put in an if statement that means false? And some programming languages, it has to be explicitly true or explicitly false, like Java, I think is that way. Other programming languages, JavaScript comes to mind, um, have a variety of things that are true and a variety of things that are false. And uh, I think JavaScript yeah. in has- JavaScript, JavaScript is seven. Seven things that are false? Yeah, falsy. So yeah, yeah, there is false, there is null, there is undefined, there is zero, uh, the minus zero, not a number, empty string. I think that's it. Yeah, wow. it's crazy I, sometimes. I, so so um, I think I think closure. I think if you're not a JavaScript person, I'm not really a JavaScript person. You look, you think about that list, and it seems complicated. Um, yeah, cl- closure, as you say, has a different goes a different way. And that is that there are two things that are false, like two explicit values that are false or treated as false, falsy, as people say, and everything else and everything else is treated as true. And the true falsy, the two falsy values are nil and false. Mm-hmm. So sort of like nobody's home and explicitly false both mean both are treated as false and like if statements in that, that kind of context and everything else. So zero is truthy in closure. Um, the empty string is truthy in closure. The string, you know, F-A-L-S-E is truthy in closure. Right. Um, right. So, so this would be, this would be the basic, uh, I call them data structures. Right. What kind of type of, what kind of collections do we have? So, so, well, so I think, I think we have two more sort of primitive 
things that we should talk about before we go on to okay. collections. And those two primitive things are symbols and keywords. Keywords are probably the easier of the two to understand. A keyword, well, syntactically, it starts with a colon, and then it more or less follows the rules of an identifier after that, if you will. So it starts with a colon, you know, so like colon employee would be a good keyword. Colon, I don't know, uh, uh, green would be another good keyword. Keywords are technically they're interned strings. So if that means something mm -hmm. to you, you, you now know what a keyword is. If that doesn't mean something to you, if you look at programs, they tend real in real life programs tend to use strings for two different purposes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, one purpose is to store data that I'm like processing and I'm reading and writing. So the employee number, the person's first name, you know, that kind of stuff, that, that's sort of one use of strings. But if you look in, and it depends on the programming language, if you look in a lot of programs, you'll see a second use of strings that we don't think about too often, which is the stand for things inside the program. So think about the keys in a hash or a map, right? Um, in uh, uh, what do they call it in in JavaScript? You have JavaScript objects, and there's the keys or the field names, and those tend to be strings, right? right? Things like employee first name, last name, employee number. Those are not. That's not data that we're really processing. Those are like things, you know, little markers inside our program, and so. Closure, like a lot of programming languages, has a special data type for that. It's keywords. So keywords make great keys for maps or hashes. And they're generally sort of when you when you might use a string, but it really is not data I'm processing. It's something, it's representing something inside my program. It's kind of an internal thing inside my program. Um, that's what a keyword is. And symbols, which are our last kind of primitive data type, I guess, that we're going to talk about. Symbols mm -hmm. basically are program, or program identifiers. And so every program, you know, if you make up a variable name X or the name of your function, um, you know, I don't know, add to or something like that, um, read the file. All of those things, if you think of all the things that might have a name in your program, a symbol Enclosure is the name of the thing. And that's only weird because Clojure lets you, it's sort of like it's a first class idea in Clojure, which is odd um, or different than a lot of programming languages where the, you know, the things that they call identifiers are kind of internal and special in the in the programming language. In Clojure, they're actually a thing that you can manipulate. And that makes sense if we roll all the way back to the beginning of this conversation, right? We said enclosure, data, and code are kind of the same thing. So if enclosure, data, and code are the same thing, then you need a primitive type to represent effectively identifiers, and that's what symbols are. Mm -hmm. So so both of them, so symbols and keywords, we would use as uh, internal parts of our programs. So what are the differences? What's the main difference between symbols and keywords? Oh, that's a great question. So a keyword stands for itself. So if I say colon employee, what I'm basically saying is, hey, this is a thing that kind of represents an employee, but it's, you know, it's just, it's more or less like a string, right? It's just colon employee. It doesn't, 
Uh, it's not sort of bound to anything else. A symbol typically is something is un, represents a value that you're going to look up like X, right? If you think about find an X in your program somewhere and chances are it's bound to some number, uh, find, mm -hmm. you know, find PI in your program, chances are it's bound to an, a number just a little bit more than three, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. keywords represent themselves. Symbols typically represent something else is, is kind of the, the thrust of that. Let me ask you this. We don't very often use keywords as a standalone keywords, right? I mean, the keywords are usually inside the map or anything like this. Right, Does right, make right. keys in them. So I think we should back up and say that maps are what other languages call hashes or maybe dictionaries. They're that I have a key and a value and a key and a value and a key and a value thing. In Clojure, we mm -hmm. call them maps, right? Because they map from a key to a value. And so, yeah, keywords tend to be uh, the probably the most common use of keywords is to be the keys, hence the name, I guess, uh, in a mm -hmm. map, right? Um, I've got an employee record in a map, and so I have first name as a key, and or as a key and a keyword, colon first name, and that's bound to a string, Russ. Um, colon last name is bound to the string, Olson, which I guess brings us to the collections, which is where we were going next. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about collections. Right. What kind of collections we have? Right. Well, what's your favorite closure collection? Let's start with your favorite. My favorite is a list, actually. Really? All yeah. right. Because it's the simplest and I think the most powerful, actually, out of them. Okay. So lists are white space separated list of things just surrounded by round parentheses. I will mention that when, when I wrote the book, my editor... And I had kind of the, probably the only the only strong disagreement we had was I say in lots of places things like round parentheses and square brackets, and she was of the opinion that a parentheses is necessarily that round character, you know, and a bracket yeah, is right. necessarily square. But I think it helps to emphasize these things when you're talking about them. So a list is like open open parentheses, and that's the round one. And then just just white space separated primitive values or other collections. So basically white space separated values. And you get lists in Clojure, they act like linked lists is the way you can think mm -hmm. of them. They're, they're, it's a little more complicated if you look under the hood, but basically they act just like linked lists. The syntactical surprise that you get when you start messing with Clojure collections is well it's it's a good surprise you don't need commas and you have never you, you will never know how annoying commas are you know having this like separate the elements in an array or a list or whatever until you use a language that doesn't need them and then you go back and you're like oh what a pain right. these commas are <laughs> um right. enclosure commas are just another bit of white space so you can put them in you can leave them out doesn't matter it doesn't really pay any attention to them Right, but lists would be actually not used for storing code in Clojure, right? Or storing data. Well, well you can, but people tend not to. Um, because if you have a sequence, an ordered sequence of values that you want to process as data, right? The kind of thing that people traditionally use arrays for. There's another thing in Clojure called the vector. And vectors by far get more use in Clojure than, than lists do. They're, they're very similar, 
But a vector looks just like a list, except instead of having those round parentheses, it has square brackets on either end. So open square bracket, white space separated values, close square bracket, that's a vector. Mm-hmm. A vector is more like array. Uh, an array. Maybe the closest thing, if you're a Java programmer, it's pretty close to an array list because you can, you know, vectors... So they are indexed. Uh, yes, there so you go. They, they are, yeah. So the difference between a list is a list is an ordered collection where indexing is not a terribly native operation. I mean, you can index through a list by counting down through the elements. This is the first element. This is the second one until you've reached the fifth one. A vector is more like an array in that it supports fast integer indexing. So I can get to the mm-hmm. 99th element of a vector without necessarily having to crawl through the first 98 elements of the vector. Vectors are also like arrays in that they naturally support when you add something to a vector, and we should really talk about what adding something to a closure data structure mm. means, because it doesn't mean what you think it means. When you add something to a vector, it naturally goes at the end of the vector, right? Which is kind of mm-hmm. an array idea, where when you add something to a list, it naturally goes at the front of the list, uh, which is kind of a linked list idea. So, so how it really works out in practice is most of the time when you're actually just writing closure code, you will use vectors to store that, that like array-like data. But the closure code itself tends to be written. So again, so that we've got the same file format for the code as for the data. When you're actually writing closure code, it's just plumb full of lists. So closure code, I, I think anybody who's ever seen a Lisp uh, programming language, they know that there's lots and lots of round parentheses. Uh, I think in part that's kind of an illusion, but you know, it, and so, so closure code tends to be made up of lists. But if you look at what that closure code is manipulating, what the program is actually doing, you discover that it's actually working with vectors more than it is lists. Um, so maybe let's go back to the list from the vectors okay. because we jumped there from storing the data. So mm-hmm. what would we use the lists for mainly? I mean, you mentioned it's the closure programs are full of lists. Right, right. So, so, so probably the main use of a list in closure is to represent closure code, right? So, um, and the a list in closure, like open round parentheses and then some things and then close round parentheses, a list syntactically in Clojure, when Clojure parses, is parsing Clojure codes and it sees a list, it's basically, this is eh, more or less with, the, there's some special cases, but more or less it's a function call. So every list as Clojure code, more or less, it's not quite true, there's exceptions, but you can, you know, for the sort of the beginner, the person who's just starting, it's a, it's a call to a function. And so what you get is you open that parentheses and then it's the function. So typically the name of a function and then the arguments of the function following that, that function value, then typically the name of the function and then close the parentheses. So because, because function calls and closure are, are, you know, you see a list and that's a function call. When you sort of look at it coming from a different programming language, it looks like the, parentheses are in the wrong place because a typical programming language has 
name of the function, open parentheses, the arguments, close parentheses. In closure, we say, ah, lists are function calls. So it's what's a list look like? It's an open parentheses, the name of a function, really a functional value, but it's typically the name of, the, of a function. And then some arguments, close parentheses. So it looks like the parentheses enclosure, they are on the outside, where on in the, you know, more uh, garden variety programming language, the print, you know, you get the name of the function followed by some parentheses with the argument. I, w I will emphasize that this looks weird. It looked weird to me the first time I came across it. If you are not used to this syntax, it will look weird to you. You should not let that dissuade you from trying the language. You know, th this is like judging a book by its cover, right? Yes, closure code, I think, I think it's fine to say this. Closure code, if you are not used to Lisp-like programming languages, you're going to come to closure code and say, what the heck is this? Because it looks different. But the look is both important to the way closure works and not as big a deal as you think. You know, I, I think that programmers get really attached to programming language syntax. And I have been known to make the claim that to a programmer, any sufficiently different programming language syntax is indistinguishable from evil, right? We just look at some foreign syntax and we have this visceral gut reaction. Ah, I could never program in that. Well, it's not true. You know, it's just, it's, it's just your gut reaction. And, uh, you know, it, it, I think that if you want to expand your kind of programming language horizons, you need to get over that. Um, it's a natural thing, Definitely. To, you know. I'm sorry? Definitely. No, definitely. I totally yeah. agree. Uh, and then there is another thing, actually, that puts some programmers off. It's uh, the prefix notation. And I find it also very strange initially. And when I came to Clojure, I was like, why? You know? But right. I think later, uh, from everything what you described, we know that actually the first value in any list is a function call. So when I saw plus, and then I saw the parameters to my plus, like one, two, three, I said, why this plus is at the beginning? But then I lay, later I understood, well, this is just a function call. And since Eden is very flexible, I don't have to call my function plus, like the letter, P-L-U-S. I can just use the symbol plus right, and it right. just all works. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things that just, and again, these are surface things. They're not very important. And it's, it's more like um, when you go to a different culture, like if you travel to a different country or something, and the food's different, and, you know, maybe they do things a little bit differently, um, it might make you feel uncomfortable, or it might not feel like quite right. But, you know, it's just another culture. It's, it's you know, if you hang around in that city or country long enough, you'll get used to it, and it'll seem perfectly natural, because it's these are fairly arbitrary decisions, so one of the culturally driven, I think, things about closure is closure is like a lot of lists is really freewheeling with uh, what you can use as an identifier. It's really a technically it's a symbol enclosure. But the thing like things like the names of functions, the names of I hesitate to say this variables, but the things that closure has that are sort of like variables, they're not quite variables. All of those things, all of the names that you can make up in Clojure, 
the rules are a lot looser than, than you are probably used to if you're coming from a different programming language. And one of the rules is that dashes are okay in symbols. So they're okay in names. And in fact, closure programmers tend to use dashes where other programming languages would use either camel case or underscore. Again, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's completely arbitrary choice. It's the choice that closure made. So I don't know if you had employee name in some other programming language, it might be employee uppercase N name, or it might be employee underbar name. In Clojure, chances are it's going to be employee dash name. And the reason Clojure can get away with that is the one you just touched on, which is that the what we think of as the arithmetic operations like plus and minus and you know asterisks for multiplication and that kind of stuff, they're not special built into the language things, they're just the names of functions. So, and the beauty of that, again, it's sort of the, uh, how many rules do I need to remember? There are just fewer rules in Clojure than average because in Clojure, pretty much everything looks like a function call, whether or not um, it really is under the covers of function call. Most things are function calls. There are a few exceptions. So what that means is that if I want to do something, I want to take some action, I want to uh, compute some value, I have I typically write a list, right? Open parentheses, more or less some verb, which is typically the name of a function, and then mm-hmm. any argument. So as you say, the way I do arithmetic in Clojure, if I want to add some numbers together, it's open parentheses, plus sign, and that plus sign is the name of a function, and then the numbers I want to add together, and it's all sort of a list. Um, that feels weird, but there certainly programmers all the time trade. This is weird for it's also completely consistent with everything else I'm doing. And this is a case where Clojure chose consistency over anything else. So if you want to do it in Clojure, chances are it's open round parentheses, some verb, which is probably the name of a function, followed by the arguments, close the parentheses. You know, it may look a little odd, but it is at least simple. It's the same every place, you know, no matter what you're doing, pretty much. Right. So these are lists. Uh, We Mm -hmm. briefly talked about vectors. Mm -hmm. uh, And then we talked about maps when we talked about keywords. So maybe let's explore maps a bit more. Right. So so syntactically, a map is an open brace. and then an even number of things and then a closed brace. And basically it's open brace, key value, key value, key value, key value, key value, however many you have, um, closed brace. And it's, you know, it's that uh, JavaScript calls them objects, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. A Java programmer might think of them as a hash map. A Ruby programmer would think of it as a hash. Python programmer, maybe a dictionary. My Python's not that great, right. but it's basically yeah, yeah, that dictionary. Yeah, key value, key value thing. I think that's like the undersung hero of modern programming, right? Like modern right. programs tend to be full of these things, and but we're a little ashamed of them. I don't know why, but <laughs> you know. <laughs> And then, as you mentioned, most of the time you would use keyword as a key. Right, yes. And this is also how we would navigate. So if, for example, I have a nested map 
and then I want to navigate to this nested map, I would just reference this by the keyword, and this is how I would obtain the value. Right, right. You can, you know, give me the the value associated with this keyword, and oh, it's another map. Give me the value associated with this keyword in that map. Oh, it's another map, and you, you know, you can go as deeply as you want until you get the some real data. Um, right, and then we also have sets. Yes, and. So sets, what are, what's the syntax for sets? I believe it's a pound sign followed by curly brace and then right, close or the with hash a, sign or yeah, pound sign, hash sign. Yeah. And a set, you know, it's a set, right? It's, it's a collection where each element can only appear once. It's a set, you know, union intersection. <laughs> right. Unique, unique elements. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, unlike maps and hashes or whatever you call them, I think most programming languages call those things sets. And so you just say the word set. And uh, mm-hmm. But should, should we talk about what makes um, all these closure collections different than the collections you Absolutely. find in most other yes. programming languages? I think this is, this is the main point, actually. Okay. So you tell me, what's different about all these collections? Where they're immutable for first. first. And okay. of course, they are persist- Yeah. Okay. Let's go with immutable. Let's go with immutable. Um, so does that? So what does immutable mean in this in this context? Well, that I cannot change it. So as much as I try, it just stays the same. Okay. So so I make the thing. I make my my map or my list or my vector or my set, and it's got however many elements in it. Maybe zero. Maybe a thousand. And then once I have it, once I've made it, I cannot change it. So I can't, can't. So if you think about a vector, a vector is very much like an array, right? Except that with almost all arrays in all programming languages, I can always go in there and say, oh, the 35th element, the 35th element is now something different, right? That's typical behavior, mm-hmm. you know, array sub 35 equals pi. I don't know, you know, change the 35th element. That is the thing you cannot do in Clojure, which raises the question, how do you get anything done in Clojure? It actually raises a whole bunch of questions, but the, right. the first one is how do you get anything done in Clojure? If I can't change any of my data structures, how do I get anything done? And the answer is that while you can't change the collect any of the closure collections in place, so take vector for example, you cannot change the 35th element of your vector once you've got the vector. What you can do is make a copy of that vector that's just like the original, except the 35th element is different. And that's how you sort of affect change in closure. Instead of like changing things in place, you make modified copies of them. So with, uh, and it's, it's pretty much the same for all of the, all the different data structures. They all have, you know, sort of the API around the uh, map is a little different than the API around the list is a little different from that around the vectors and sets, but they all have the same idea that you can do like the typical modify a map thing or modify the list thing, except that instead of changing the one that you have, you always get a new one that's modified. And that's how you do all your computing in Clojure, pretty much, or at least the computing that involves collections, is that you make modified copies of the thing you started with. But then that raises another question. 
Exactly. Like, so if I did, I don't know, let's say five operations on my vector or map, does it mean I have now five copies of this vector? So uh, let me make it worse. Let me, let me, what if I have a million element vector and I want to do five operations on that million element vector? Does that mean that I'm going to make five copies of that million element vector and have, you know, kind of somewhere floating around in memory, five million elements when all I wanted to do was maybe change five in the middle or something. Mm -hmm. And the lovely answer is no, you do not have to make copies um, because all of these closure data structures behind the scenes, you know, sort of the programmer API is completely reasonable, kind of make a, make a copy on, on modification kind of API, like exactly what you would expect. But behind the scenes, there's really a fairly sophisticated data structures that represent these lists and vectors and maps and things like that. So take vectors, for example, a vector on the outside seems like an array. On the inside, it's actually represented, it's broken up and it's sort of represented by, the, by a tree. And the reason it's represented by a tree is that when you go to make that modified copy, and I sort of put copy in uh, or modified in quotes there, because we're really sort of making um, what looks like another copy, that, that second vector, the modified one, will share most of, a, of the data with the first one, right? And the mostly, more or less, the only difference will be the thing that's actually different between those two vectors, particularly if the vectors are large. So if you have a million element vector and you change like the, you know, the, the element in, in the middle, chances are that the process of making that change is only going to change, is only actually going to copy a very small amount of data. And then the rest, you know, maybe... If it's a million element vector, 999,000 of those elements are, are going to be shared between those two vectors, which might make you worry, like, what if, what if I, I make a change to that first vector? Will it change the stuff in the second one? And then you realize, no, it's immutable. You can't change it. So this immutability thing starts to hang together. It's, you know... Part of the wonderfulness of immutability is that you can share data without having to worry about something changing out from underneath you. It can't change because it's immutable. So, so the I think you touched on it. You mentioned that these uh, sophisticated data structures are called persistent data structures. And what a persistent data structure in this context means is that it's an immutable data structure that supports a very fast copy on modification semantics. It, in particular, it doesn't have anything to do with persistent as in I stored it in the database or put it on a file. It's, it's an unfortunate collision of terminology that someone came up with. Right. Yeah. I also find it very strange when, someone, when, when I hear the word persistent data structures, like, okay. Yeah, I think Do I save them to my database. <laughs> I, I think there's only so many words, you know. <laughs> there's, I think this is proof there's more ideas in computer science than there are words. All right. So, is there anything else actually in Eden that it's worth to talk about? Um. So let's see. So the E in Eden stands for extensible. So, so I think that that's the gist of Eden, right? That that's the, yeah. the main ideas of Eden. So. 
Um, if you're listening to this and you're really tired, well, relax, because none of the rest of this is, is all that important. But there are a few little things. So one of the E in the Eden stands for extensible. So there's actually uh, a, a standard way to uh, kind of define your own data structures in Eden. And that standard way is a hash sign, maybe a pound sign, that thing that looks like a tic-tac-toe board, um, mm-hmm. followed by uh, an, a, a symbol. And you can attach that, you can sort of define what that means. Um, so there's, uh, bottom line is there's an extensibility uh, feature in there so that you can make sort of your own data types in Eden. And so, and a couple of them are, there, there are some that are predefined. One of them is UUIDs, right? So there's a standard mm-hmm. way of saying this is a UUID in Eden. There's a standard way of saying this is a date time in Eden, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, right. they're sort of extensions. Let's see. Um, cool. I think that's it, no? Yeah, I'll I think just, so. Uh, you know. I think all that right. is. I think so, I, I think if you're really new to closure and you've listened to all this, well, congratulations! You've uh, you've probably gotten through the hard part of it. <laughs> right. So if you enjoyed this episode and if you would like to support the author, check out the book Getting Closure, and you can actually use the link from the show notes below. And in this way, the author will get the better part of the deal. Um, so good. thank you, Russ, for being uh, on the show. You're you're very welcome. I was gonna I was gonna cheer for the author getting the better part of the deal there, but thank you for that. It's been a pleasure. All right, thank you. Bye. All right, bye. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.